Hey everyone, I'm Cappy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate. This is a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their community. If you're new to the pod, welcome. If you've listened before, welcome back. By now you've probably noticed we have a special bonus episode this week with one of our incredible partners, Ford's Gin. If you've been listening to any of our Beyond the Drink episodes this season, you've probably heard the special introductions with the man himself, Simon Ford of Yes, Ford's Gin. But today we get to hear a little bit more about the journey behind the bottle. Simon and I sat down and we talked about everything from this idea as it was literally written out on a napkin from him sitting in a bar to this whole testing process and the number of back and forths it took for him to actually settle on the final recipe. And of course, it's really not a beyond the plate episode if we don't talk about social impact and giving back. And Ford's has definitely been there for the bartending community. So if you're new to beyond the plate, please check out some of our other episodes featuring chefs and food personalities and also this new season of Beyond the Drink, which airs every other week right here on Beyond the Plate. And for this season of Beyond the Drink, we talked with some incredible bartenders from across the country, and they share their favorite gin cocktails and, of course, how they also give back to their community. I will stop here, but please enjoy this episode as we go Beyond the Plate and Beyond the Drink with Simon Ford of Ford's Gin. Hey everyone, one more thing before we get going. We have some awesome Beyond the Plate merch, which you can find a link to in your podcast player or at beyondtheplatemerch.com. Head on over and check out our hats, tees, and hoodies. Again, that's beyondtheplatemerch.com. All right, enjoy this week's episode. All right, Simon, very recently in the 2021 Ultimate Spirits Challenge, Ford's Gin received 94 points. Congrats. Tried and true award for superb quality, finalists in the gin category, and deemed great value. So going back nearly 10 years ago, Mr. Simon Ford, were you nervous to put your name on the bottle? Yes, absolutely. I was outvoted by my business partners and friends in that moment. You know, it was suggested by a very good friend who's not with us anymore, Sasha Petrosky, who said, Simon, you really should put your name on the label of Ford's gin, you know, you've been associated with Ford's for us bartenders for 10 years, you know, prior to that. And uh, you've given us education, but, you know, people know you for gin. And as soon as that idea popped up with my business partners, they went, what a great idea. And, and sometimes people might notice that there's no apostrophe in Ford's. And it was, that was my sort of trepidation to put ownership of my name on it. I mean, it's obviously a very loose kind of like, you know, anyone who knows me can put two and two together, but anyone who doesn't know me might not associate it back to a person because there's no apostrophe. So I, I was definitely very, very nervous. And I actually, you talk about the ultimate spirits challenge. It wasn't until we entered it into the, ultimate spirits challenge in 2013 which was the first year we were able to and we won the chairman's trophy and we scored 96 points that year and in that moment i got all of this confidence that what we'd created was something that people were truly going to appreciate for its quality Uh, so that was a sort of defining moment of confidence for me but up until that point i was tiptoeing into places with the bottle hoping and wishing that people would like it as much as i did Wow. And so at that point, you entered in 2013. When did it start or hit the shelves? 2012? So the very, yeah, the very, it was interesting because the very first bottle of Forge Gym was sold in September of 2012. And it was funny, we had product raring and ready to go. 
but we couldn't figure out the distribution model of the United States at the time. We were like struggling to find places to sell it. And I remember us all sort of being in a small room in a WeWork in, in New York somewhere, uh, arguing about how we're going to actually sell some of this and put some money in the bank. And all of a sudden a picture gets posted. I think obviously Facebook, uh, of a bar in California. I'm like, how did they get our product? And then we were like, wow, it's in a distribution company. Amazing. And I was like, can I fly to California and go and sell some more? And they're like, I don't think we have the money for a flight. <laughs> and that's a true story. I mean, we, we, we got into an argument about whether I could afford to go to California or not and be a salesperson on the streets. So yeah, 2012. That's so wild. So question, why gin? I sort of fell in love with gin a long, long time ago. Uh, I was working in a wine shop in London and, you know, that was my sort of first love when it came to, to, to the drinking world. Uh, but you know, at the end of a, a shift after a bottle of wine would end up in a pub and, you know, after a few pints, I wanted to move on to something lighter and the gin and tonic was the drink for me. And I remember just sort of falling for a gin. I'm not going to mention competitors on today. We weren't around <laughs> then, but, um, I remember falling for a gin and that was my call. And I remember not getting it for the very first time, not knowingly. And I was like, this isn't such and such a gin. And then I started re realizing that there was lots of differences and nuances between it. And I started exploring gin even back then. But I would say that really what happened is I had this sort of little bit of love for gin and drinking it. And of course, the great gin and tonic, uh, the drink of the gin and tonic. I loved the gin and tonic so much. And, and then I got a job at a spirits marketing company. And one of the oldest gin distillers, distilleries, should I say, in the world sort of asked me if I wanted to work on their gin and, and gin wasn't cool back then. And I put my hand up as the, one of us among the team to say, I'll do the gin when no one else wanted to do it. And so uh, in working for that gin company, I picked up and earned my stripes essentially. Wow, that's incredible. So it said that Forge was crafted by bartenders for bartenders. Right. So why did you feel it was important to include bartenders in the process? Bartenders to me have been setting, ever since I've been in this industry, bartenders have been setting trends. Not that I like the word trends, but they have been setting trends, but they've been inspiring. It's probably a better word and influencing a significant word, the way people drink beyond any other people out there in the world. You know, the, the spirits marketing companies definitely have huge influence but they get a lot of their inspiration and influence from what bartenders are doing. They look at the things that are happening in bars. And in you know, sort of the late 90s, early 2000s, this whole reemergence of craft cocktails saw bartenders really take off as artists of their craft, you know, in the same way as chefs had. And I, I loved watching what they were doing and watching what they were doing with spirits and how they would analyze it. And so it made complete sense to me. And even back then, there were entrepreneurs in the spirits world doing things like bitters. You know, I always think that bitters are, are very indicative of what a bartender would do. It's not about money. It's about passion. You know, to come up with a, a product that only goes two dashes in doesn't come up with someone that's money. You know, that doesn't come from someone that's money minded. That comes from someone who is, we need this product for cocktails and it's going to make them better and more delicious. And so, of course, going to bartenders who are the people that work with the products on a day-to-day -day basis and introduce products to consumers on a day-to-day -day basis in beautiful and excellent uh, you know, tasting ways. I thought that was the right thing to do was to talk about gin with bartenders throughout the entire process of developing the recipe for Ford's gin. I mean, that makes complete sense. So, so take us back, you know, pre-2012, as this idea was dreamt up, you, you notice bartenders have different gins as, you know, for different cocktails. Is that right? 
That's right. Yeah. I, it, it really was a, an interesting conversation between me and Sasha again, because Sasha and I shared this, this belief that this is the best gin for a martini and this is the best gin for a, a gin and tonic. And this is the best in a fizz, you know, ones with high juniper content work better in fizzes. And so we sort of sat there and went, we need to make a universal cocktail gin. And the, the term we were branding around, because we loved these gins, of course, that we were discussing and talking about uh, for Fords was, we said, let's make a jack of all trades. And of course, that comes with the negative second line, which is master of none, right? But the, but the, um, the concept of Fords was, let's just make a jack of all trades. And, and that was a real challenge for us, because that meant looking at what botanicals match with different styles of cocktails. You know, what are the characteristics of a gin that would make a great martini? What are the characteristics that make a great gin and tonic and a fizz and so on? And how do we bring that all together in one bottle so the challenge began from that sort of one moment that i you know i like to say to people that it started the idea started on the back of a napkin and it really did we were in a bar when we were having these discussions we were drinking gin at that bar when we were having these discussions and we were at a bar when we came up with this idea so so then what happens so at that point you team up with this distiller that can execute your vision and is that when master distiller charles maxwell from thames distiller comes into play or not yes. yet yeah i mean it, not quite well yeah around that time i i, I you know I, I don't know if charles knows this but i actually took the concept and ideas and recipes that we conceptualized to about five different distillers that i knew and we actually got the recipes back and in in this first round uh, we actually gave the same recipe to every single gin distiller to see what they would produce. So that helped us actually choose someone to work with. And Charles, the gins that he was making for us in that moment were consistently better than anyone else's. And so it really, you know, you know, felt right to go and, and work with him on the, the development of the recipe. And he's, you know, 10th generation, as you mentioned, his tons of experience his distillery has been open since 1996 so he's a bit of a gin visionary in, in 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 itself so it was a real pleasure to work with him and i've always called him the master of no nonsense because any crazy idea i had he sort of put me on the straight and narrow with creating something that wasn't a novelty gin but something that was a really good proper classic style of gin so you come up with this recipe formula of nine botanicals traditional juniper, coriander, citruses, spices, florals, etc. You're welcome to go into details on those ingredients or the process, but I'm but I'm more curious. You said this multi-year, three-year process going back and forth like how many times? Like like 5 or like 50? 83. <laughs> Seriously? Yes. I, I, I got a, a 83 logged uh, gin recipes that we tested over that period. No, not all of them made it to the bartender because some we were able to say that's not good enough before we took it to the next level. You know, we would taste that ourselves uh, and go, no, this is what we would tweak. But when we had ones that we were happy and comfortable with, then we would take those to, to the bartenders. Yeah, a lot of gins. And, and, and interestingly enough, we got to the recipe we liked uh, in, I think it was recipe 64, 65, around that mark. But it just didn't quite have the the oil content, you know, gin's made up of essential oils that come from the botanicals and that gives it viscosity, it gives it flavor, uh, you know, and, and it's that sort of those oils and viscosity that 
make gin very smooth in drinks like a martini. And so we started playing with the oil contents and the ABVs at that point. And so the last gins we were making were really just fine tuning how the ABV of Ford's held the essential oils and how those essential oils released in the cocktail. You know, one thing I always encourage people to do with Ford's is actually just add a splash of water and see how the flavors obviously evolve, which is what happens to a lot of gins. But the thing that I think makes Ford's unique is actually it really opens up the oils and makes it even fuller on the palate, which is essentially what's happening with the gin in your glass when you add tonic or when you it's in a mixing glass and you're stirring it with vermouth and some ice. That was a, the second part of the journey was really making sure it was smooth, viscous, and the ABV was right for using in cocktails. So it's slightly higher than uh, than, than some, but 45% ABV. Yeah, so you have this traditional base of the juniper and coriander seed. You have citru- multiple citrus, multiple florals, multiple spices. Is, and forgive me, do all gins have citrus, florals, and spices? Not all gins, no. I mean, all gins have juniper. And in fact, there's even gin out there that only has juniper. And juniper is the single important ingredient, as you know, that gin is named after. London dry gins tend to work off of a base of four botanicals, the the big four as they're often known, which is coriander being the most significant of those botanicals, you know, post juniper. You know, you will find a lot that are using orris root, for example, and you'll see a lot that are using angelica. Angelica brings sweetness. But again, not all uh, gins use those uh, ingredients either and not all gins have citrus you know there are certain big brand names that don't have any citrus whatsoever although a lot of citrus flavor can come from coriander interestingly enough so sometimes you'll try a gin that has coriander and you might pick up citrus and that's you're not wrong you know there's a lot of citrus flavor coming from it now we felt at Ford's that having lots of citrus would brighten it up in cocktails it adds a little bit of energy to gin it, you know and you know it's sort of vibrant to have uh, a lot of citrus so we have bitter orange lemon and grapefruit and the grapefruit certainly dominates of the three on the ford's palette you know it adds that sort of pithiness and and grapefruit goes well with lime you know which is which is good juniper goes very well with lemon so it starts to help the gin become great in lemon citrus cocktails as well as lime citrus cocktails sort of boosts boosts that that versatility yeah so tell me again like what's a what's a classic london dry gin and explain what is what what is meant when i see ford's has created this new style of classic london dry gin so I, i i'm really proud that ford's is a london dry gin i think london dry is a a mark of quality in the gin world it's a style that's not specific to London, interestingly enough. You can make London dry anywhere in the world, and there's just a few different rules that you need to, to, to follow. Uh, significantly, you have to use real ingredients, so your flavors can't be derived from, you know, uh, added, added flavor. You know, it has to come from natural, real botanical ingredients. And so that's one thing that I think is great for London dry gin. And because of that rule, you can't add anything after distillation so you can't add sugar or essences and things like that if you want to be a London dry gin. So the work of what's in the bottle is really the work of the distiller. Uh, you can add things like water, obviously, to bring it uh, down to proof or some uh, more neutral uh, spirit to to balance out your botanicals in what they call a two-shot style of making gin. But you can't add anything from a point of view of sweetener and flavor post. And so that's what makes 
London dry gin. And that's why I love the category of London dry gin. And for me, I don't, we didn't set out to make a London dry. I actually think we ended up making a London dry because we were testing in cocktails. And of course, in testing it in cocktails, we would see our style move towards the London dry style and which made total sense to me because that's what the classic cocktails were all invented with they were invented with london dry gin so it's sort of an expected flavor the reason i sort of say that forge is a modern take on it is because i feel like we made forge gin during this modern cocktail revival this era that we're in right now and so we've addressed the needs of today's bartenders in in our in the way we've developed the recipe which you know even though it's a classic style it was developed in the last 10 years that's incredible. This is so eye-opening for me. Would you say London dry gin or the style of London dry gin is superior quality or standards as compared to, we don't have to name names, I but others? Necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily say it was a superior standard. It's just more of a guaranteed thing if you were looking and reading at labels, you know, a little, little bit like having a, you know, an Appalachian Control A or something like that. You know, I mean, even though it's not an Appalachian Control A in terms of geographic uh, where it comes from geographically, but it, but it is one that sort of protects you from a quality point of view. That's where I was going with this next, because here in the U S you have like the American dairy council and the Cal, you know, the avocado commission and the, this and that. And I feel like if they don't correct me, if I'm wrong here, I feel like London dry gin should have this like coalition supporting London dry gin makers. There is the the gin guild in London. It's a very old, it's like one of these old uh, English uh, livery companies that sort of was born out of the worshipful uh, company of distillers that was founded in 1638. And uh, they're, they're sort of around to protect gin and they're the ones that really work uh, to to give good sort of press to London dry as a style to help people identify between different styles of gins, you know, especially in a world where we've got lots of flavored gins now and things like pink gins that are out there, you know, strawberry flavored and uh, gins that are sort of made in a similar way to, to vodka. So they, you know, they, I don't think we should stop this innovation. The innovation is always good, but I think it's very good that the consumer understands the difference between classic and something that might be flavored and give them the opportunity to to have the knowledge and know that, that someone's sort of protecting that uh, it's very it's very pragmatic still i mean obviously the law of the laws are in place uh, to protect the style of london dry gin and there are evolving styles of gin right now that obviously still need to be addressed but it's exciting time for the gin category in general you know we're seeing lots of innovation all over the world okay so that was actually my next question you see too many vodkas release too many flavors. Sure. <laughs> so how does the spirit innovate? Though? Like, how does gin innovate or evolve? You have this home run recipe. I mean, eighty-three back and forth with Ford's gin. So, what do you do? It's a, it's 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 a great question. One I've not really thought of uh, thought about that much either. But as as you were asking the question, all I could think of was there are hundreds and hundreds of ingredients that gin distillers call botanicals, you know, the herbs, spices and fruits and so on that you could use to create a recipe in gin. And the, the, the possibilities are almost endless, you know, uh, th that in itself gives so much opportunity for flavor innovation that the need to add things after that, uh, it, you know, certainly to me feels like, um, it's trying to be vodka a little bit, you know, when you have a, 
uh, a flavored gin, you know, an orange flavored gin. And some of those gins are also historic though. So it, it's a very tough area to form a, you know, one opinion of, you know, because there are some flavored gins that I go, oh, that was brilliant. And there are some I'm, where I go, I can't believe this is allowed to be called gin, you know, I, I, you know, and, and so it's certainly not one way or the other, which I think is good. But um, for me personally, there is so much that could be pulled from botanicals already that the, the reason or the fact that innovation went beyond that with adding things and flavors, I think there was a hugely successful gin with uh, a cucumber essence added cucumber and rose essence and i think that inspired and influenced a lot of people to take the journey to do something different in 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 that way and with that respect and i think that that essentially evolved into the flavored gin world and i i loved what what they did and i, I don't necessarily love so much some of the things they've influenced though and uh, you know for me i i'm a little bit of a traditionalist but like to sort of put things within um, um, give a modern edge to something so it'll be interesting to see what fun we have with fords in the future and and how my mind gets changed but i don't think you're going to see a pink gin from us anytime soon i was just going to say so no cotton candy flavored uh gym no. i'm just kidding <laughs> please don't how's that <laughs> you know, for, for me if, if we make new gins there will be a reason that came from the bartender that we're addressing you know a flavor that would you know, specifically relate to martinis or specifically relate to certain cocktails, you know, make a, a gin that worked extra well in a specific type of cocktail. You know, you know, we, we are making a slow gin, for example, and, you know, our whole mission is can we make the slow gin fizz a comeback drink? You know, like, you know, like that to me is a great mission to be on, you know, so the slow gin is there and it's fun to make the slow gin, but what will be more fun for us is seeing people do things with it, like slow gin fizzes or reviving old classics that used to be made with slow gin or, or even inventing new things. It's really about what the bartenders do with it that will inspire us to create things. God, you know, this hasn't aired yet, but I recorded an ep a long episode with uh, Tony Abugani. He's brilliant, isn't he? I mean, I think that Tony is one of the people that helped make the Negroni famous again. Yeah, he's incredible. And I know he's a gin lover and we were talking about it and he was rattling off all these classic cocktails, you know, from Bee's Knees to Negroni to whatever. And, and then uh, this morning... I never really think about alcohol at six in the morning when I'm laying in bed, but I was laying in bed and I'm like, <laughs> you know, when I start going out more, I want to just, I want to go back. I love like the new spins, you know, people using shrubs and this and that in a cocktail, but I've never really got to enjoy the classics, you know, and I've had them, I've tried them, but I, for me, it's like, not to go off on a tangent, but with food, if I'm ordering a specific type of fish or meat, I know if the restaurant can like execute it, like I'm not going to order a, a, a risky dish at a restaurant. I'm like, nah, I don't think I want to order that. So with a cocktail, you know, I want to make sure that this person's going to execute it right. If I'm, you know, ordering a classic, but I want to go back and start ordering more of the classics. I see, I see things like daiquiris and martinis in a similar way that chefs talk about risotto or an omelet, you know, and, 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 
you've got to nail these classics, but you know, you've got to learn to um, walk before you can run. And you, and, and the classics are there as these building blocks. I mean, even if you look at in, innovation in, in cocktails, they're still following the same formula that bartenders have been using for 150 years. And so if you sort of start without those sort of principles and foundations of the classic drinks, and I'm sure Tony spoke to this, but I haven't listened to that episode yet. I'm going to, going to, that might be after here. Uh, you know, if you learn those, then you can actually start to figure out how you can change those formulas to create drinks for a modern era. You know what? That the way we just described, you know, evolving classic cocktails to, you know, changing out one ingredient, knowing the formulas and 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 making a new flavor. That's this forged gin in in many ways. You know, forged is a classic. You know, but we've changed a few things around for the the the, 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 the modern age. But uh, it couldn't have started if I didn't know classic gin and Charles didn't know classic gin first. Yeah, it's exactly what it's funny. It's exactly what Tony was saying. He's like, Andrew, you take a daiquiri, you know, two parts rum, you know, one part this, one part this, you know, whatever it was. I'm like, okay, and he's like, and then you build off of that if you want to steep something into it or, you know, make a maraschino cherry infused rum or, you know, whatever it may be. And it was interesting hearing him talk about that, but it's, it's funny you bring up, you brought up perfect food examples, whether it was a risotto or a scramble or an omelet, you go to a restaurant and how many, like my wife loves mashed potatoes. Okay. Me too. So she orders them. I'm like, (laughs) these suck. And why do these suck? Like they're mashed potatoes. Like they shouldn't suck. A cook, a chef back there should know how to properly execute a dish like mashed potatoes, you know? Same with risotto. I know Michelin star chefs who won't serve risotto because they know if it sits in the window too long, that consistency just like, you know, textured consistency diminishes by the second almost, you know? Um, But same for cocktails. I'm like, yeah, I would love to order. I order Negronis, but I would love to order a proper something and i'm like the other thing with knowing the classics though is is there's knowing what to add or what ingredients you could change to evolve it there's also knowing what you could take out you know if you think about how the aviation evolved you know i mean creme de violette was a key part it gave it the color but it evolved into a drink that didn't have creme creme de violette in it and that actually was a very different tasting drink or even the Gibson, you know, when the Gibson evolved as a style of martini, that was the first martini that didn't have bitters in it as a ingredient. So that was a part of martini's evolution was the uh, emittance of a, a particular ingredient. So it's really interesting how bartenders can, can take recipes and, 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 and the evolution can, can move forward. And of course I was drinking a, a, a Gibson last night and this one had been in a, in a barrel and the, the onion for the garnish had been marinated in a mixture of gin botanicals, you know, so that when you bit it afterwards, you got juniper flavor and, and, and so on and so forth. And it's just tiny little touches. But did they change up the formula of the drink? No, they just played around with a couple of ingredients to enhance the experience or make that experience unique to their specific uh, venue. You're hitting upon... I feel like you're going to be my therapist here for a second. You're hitting upon <laughs> the struggles of parts of my career. I, 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 I'm, a, I'm a trained chef that went to Culinary Institute of America and remember clear as day watching Ferdinand Metz, uh, a certified master chef who was the president of the school at the time, stand up there welcoming us to the school saying, less is more, essentially. You should cook a dish here. I, I want you to be able to take away an ingredient and still have that dish be as good, if not better. 
like focusing on quality of ingredients and execution. And now I work full time with Rachel Ray, who doesn't consider a chef herself a chef. She's a home cook and has a brilliant sense of uh, knowledge when it comes to ingredients. But for Rachel, she she likes a lot of flavor and more is more for her. And sometimes we talk about recipes and she's like, and I'll add, you know, chives and some this and some this. And I was like, you know, in my mind, I was like, slow down or stop sure <laughs> even though she's created this massive brand that she's created so who am i to tell her to slow down or stop but then i make the dish and i'm like damn this is really good you know and so for me it's this like balance of uh, simplicity and few ingredients and cleanliness and quality versus she's she we i mean we had the conversation two days ago she's like you know i like a lot of flavor cappy we we're testing out a new a spice blend she's like you know i like more flavor so more add more dill, you know? Sure. I, 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 you know what, taking, you know, sort of building on what you just said, I see, and this is, uh, I think this is a good analogy for cocktail making, but cocktails are more like baking, you know, than they are um, like cooking. So cooking's like, oh, a little bit more salt, throw a little bit more in. Whereas making a cocktail, it's all about uh, the recipe and accuracy and, and, and finding the balance between the ingredients, right? Which is why you see people sort of switch out ingredients, but stick to f formulas as it were. So, you know, the analogy would be baking for me. You know, I, I think about, you, you had a lot of bartenders come on and make drinks, you know, Massa did a, his take on a martini as it, as, as it were. Actually, I say that, but Massa added a pinch of salt to the martini, which is kind of a genius move, right? Uh, you know, or, or um, Megan Dorman went and made a Collins recipe, right? Which is a classic style of drink based off of the Tom Collins. But instead of just a simple syrup, she made a jasmine syrup, which was great for me because that goes really well with, you know, the jasmine flavors of forged gin, because that's one of the botanicals we use. And she added in some vermouth there. So now, or I think Coqui Americano and, and, you know, and now you're adding an, another dimension, but still following the formula of a Collins, you know, so I feel like it's much uh, done in much the same way as, as baking. And it's, and, and it's all about selection of ingredients. So you're making an apple pie or you're making an apple and rhubarb crumble you know but you're sort of they, they they're going to be made in a very similar fashion you know it's very hard to sort of break rules in baking it's much easier to break rules in cooking yeah tell me about let's talk about the bottle of, of sure. Ford's chain because it's it's so i kind of like was aware but i wasn't i picked up the bottle i was like this feels good and then i kind of like look around but it's not until you like like i encourage anyone listening to this if you have not had Ford's or like picked up the bottle pick up the bottle and just, I mean, it's really interesting what you've done with it. So I'm curious if you can hit upon that. I, I'll tell you something about the bottle. It's very, I mean, it, obviously it, part of our philosophy that evolved out of going to the bartender, firstly, when we were conceptualizing the gin, but then obviously when we were creating the recipes and asking bartenders to try it in cocktails and telling us how we could improve the recipe during that process, you know, when it came to, okay, now we've got a gin and it needs to go in a bottle, our initial thought was we need to put this in a we they're called stock bottles they're the ones you can just buy in bulk and put your product in it and and so but we said well we need to do exactly the same thing that we did with the gin we need to go to bartenders and ask them which is their favorite of these bottles so we went around all the bars and of course what we got was this is our favorite neck this is the most popular neck this is the most popular middle this is the most popular of this i'm like 
damn, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to make our own bottle. So we, then we started working with a, a, an ergonomic industrial designer who was working on creating. Uh, glass and plastic bottles for the uh, water companies that reduce the amount of plastic. That's where it was back. You know, the, that's where the state of saving the oceans was back then. It's just reduce plastic rather than uh, stop it altogether. But he was working on reducing the amount of plastic by creating ergonomics and doing the same with glass. And so we went to him and said, can we create an ergonomic bottle that uses less glass? So that's actually what happens with uh, Ford's. It's actually quite a lightweight bottle that uses less glass than your average, but of course done by an industrial designer to strengthen it in all the areas is needed. But of course, what we did is we incorporated all of the best ideas from the bartenders we talked to, just like we did with the gin. And of course, you can never have such a thing. There's no such thing as a perfect bottle, but we wanted one that had usability. And we even got to a point where we went to a, we had a phys uh, physical therapist who was working with bartenders on their bartender injuries, right? So bartenders will get repetitive injury syndrome if they do the same pour every single time, right? You know, that, that you know, doing a pour can hurt your wrist or something like that. So he's, he was encouraging bartenders to pour bottles in different ways in different shifts, you know? And so we said, well, let's have a bottle that can be poured in many different ways. And so we put the long neck that's you know, most bartenders favor with the, uh, the, the comfort in the, uh, in the neck so that it fits nice in the hand. But that design is an old design in itself because it allows the, the flow of bubbles in and out of the bottle when you're pouring. So you actually get a more consistent flow. So it's got a double use. Uh, we wanted to create something that had a neck or you know that didn't break when other bottles went into a speed rail. We put a little ridge in the middle of it so people with smaller hands could hold the bottle more comfortably and, and, and tapered it at the bottom so that it would be comfortable like a wine bottle if you poured, uh, you know, taking the cap off. And of course we added things like measurements on the back. What's really interesting about the bottle, I was really frustrated in the early days because we'd spent three years making a gin and all anyone talked about was the bottle, you know, and I'm like, what about the gin? What about the gin? But I didn't realize at the time that, you know, like that was, you know, helping people get introduced to our gin. The bottle is a sort of vehicle, you know, n never underestimate packaging, right? You know, there's sometimes probably a lesson learned there. But what I love about that bottle to this day is I can go into a bar or restaurant, I can do a talk on gin and how we make it and the botanicals and the pot still and you know the process and the flavors and do the tasting i can usually and or what usually happens is one bartender knows the bottle already and picks it up and instinctively points out all of these features so it is something that really need not be discussed in a you know, when you're talking to professional bartenders, they instinctively go, oh, look at this bottle. They've done these things. And it's really nice, you know, and I've seen, I've seen major brands be inspired and influenced by our bottle and make certain changes. And that to me is, if that ends up being the influence that we had on the industry, that there are better and more usable bottles in speed rails uh, all over the world, just because we did this bottle once, then I'll, that, 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 that would make me very happy. I mean, I was, I was like 32, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, I feel like all these bottles are going to be mimicking the Ford's gin bottle because, you know, you have these awkward rectangular bottles. With, <laughs> I'm like, wh who wants to like, does that, I don't even know if it looks good. It, it looked good for a second, but you know, that that's not fun to pour, you know, one of those awkward bottles that's extremely heavy and a lot of glass yeah, and, and all that. And, but, and really all, all, all we did with Fords was take the best features of our favorite bottles that were out there and, and put them together. So, you know, good bottles existed, but there's no reason for bad ones to. 
Yeah. Right. But even beyond that, you have this la- so you have this label that peels off easy, so you could keep it. There's measurement marks like etched into the bottle. I mean, uh, again, for anybody listening, go into a your local liquor store, spirit store, and pick it up and, and then buy it. But I, I encourage you to check it out. Thanks, Andrew. Awesome. So I want to get into a little bit of social impact and giving back because Ford's. To be honest, it's one of the ways I was introduced to Ford's um, through an event that you guys took part of. I know you've done different things from trash tiki um, organizations, North American tour, uh, all female, you know, bartending competition, speed rack and James Beard Foundation Awards and share our strength. And you've done things during the pandemic. But did you start the brand knowing you wanted to give back to bartenders or what? how did that go? I mean, everything is sort of community, especially when you're in the bartender world. And so I certainly knew that the beginning of our journey would be all about bartenders, right? And 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 the more I think about it on a day-to-day basis, it's you it, if you are providing a service or you're selling something to a customer, you're you know, the best thing you can think about is is how do we give back to the people that support us, right? So we started with a philosophy that was very simple. It wasn't really about uh, altruism or anything like that. We weren't thinking that way. We we're just thinking we support those who support us. That was our simple rule. It sort of sat there in our company values. You know, we did that. We support those who support us. And so for us, putting together things that uh, supported the industry and with what the industry is trying to tackle and being able to support those things, you know, is something that we're very passionate about. You know, and we don't always have the knowledge to do it, but we certainly, and we don't always have the money to do it, but we certainly have the the, the passion to do it when, when and where we can. And so we, you know, when we get, you know, opportunities to to um to help in any way and and we know we're in a position that we can we do and then sometimes we 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 initiate them on our own you know when we when we can so it's you know caring obviously is 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 a a big part of what every brand should do in this day and age it did start right from the very beginning i had a business partner who was so conscious about environmental impact that we started our supply chain model looking at how we could have one of the least impactful uh, possible you know and and there's again there's no such thing as perfect and this is the thing we toured with trash tiki trash tiki were very keen to partner with us because we were going at it with we're not perfect but we're trying and we make improvements when we can and trash tiki's whole policy was you know we know you can't be perfect you're running a bar it, it in it's going to generate waste, but here are some ways you can generate less waste, you know? And so it wasn't about being perfect. It was about doing a little bit better. And that's what we apply to all of the things we get involved with. It's just, can we do something that makes us a little bit better or contribute to something that's making the world a little bit better as a part of our philosophy as a brand company, really? Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, it's, it's, it sounds a little cliche even talking about it, you know, like it's the type of thing that I, I, we, you know, we, that's why we support others more than do these initiatives ourselves. And you'll seldom see it in our marketing materials. I don't think it's ever been in our marketing materials, really, you know, occasional invitation, of course, that says, hey, we're supporting the billion dollar oyster project, or this charity is being supported by this event. But that's just sort of nature of legality. And, you know, that event being a collaboration between Fords and such and such a charity. But in general, most of the giving back we do tends to be, you know, not very over. It's not our message. Our message is we make great gin for cocktails, you know, but I think every company 
has responsibilities if they are gonna yeah. pull from the earth. I think it makes sense. I think what you guys are doing makes sense. Giving back and supporting bartenders, the bartending community makes sense. There's there's plenty of uh, spirits, big and small. Some of them, and I'm sure, I know you guys do this too. You know, donating product to a charity event, which is great. Don't get me wrong, but taking that one step further and you know being there for the community and things like that. You know what I cool. like about this new generation? They demand it now. You know, like I don't think that was the case when we were sort of first starting out, but they demand it of their companies, and I love them for that. You know, so I mean, you know, you know. So, Companies are going to have to step up if they haven't already. And I've seen so many stepping up. And I think that, you know, that's a really good start. But in this instance, it started with the consumers saying, we want you to do more. Yeah, I love it. Awesome. All right. It's only right that like the incredible bartenders we've been talking with, we uh, throw a speed round your way too. Speed round. Okay. You ready? (laughs) Sure. I'll try. Name the cocktail that inspired you to get behind the bar. Because you, you obviously bartended, yeah. yes. Yeah. It, and it, it, this is interesting because it's not a gin drink. I remember the moment so well. It was a, a, a restaurant that didn't last long uh, called High Holborn in London. And we went downstairs to a lounge and I was served a Sazerac. And drinks to me back then needed to be packed with lots of ice and have, you know, be garish and big. And a drink came with no ice whatsoever in a short glass and it was that much liquid in the bottom. And I was like, what the hell is this? You know, and 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 I literally thought I was getting ripped off because this was, you know, I was young, I was ignorant, I guess, and 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 had never been given a drink like that. And so I, but I took a sip and I went, this is magical. And so I I had to talk to the bartender, you know, and this is like not even a part of my job at this particular point. And the bartender was a gentleman by the name of Wayne Collins. And uh, he was very influential as a bartender in London uh, in in those years. He'd opened a bar called 1806 that had done all uh, cocktails that were classic, you know, way before his time. One of the best educators on cocktail culture in London as well. And, but I didn't know him. I met him in that moment. And it was interesting because I was with my boss at the the time and he's like we need to work with this guy in some capacity one day and we did you know i ended up working with him for a few years which was amazing very cool last cocktail you made at home the last cocktail i made at home i'm so lazy i have two uh martinis in my freezer at any given time a five to one and a 50 50 that are pre-diluted and i and i have martini glasses in there that are pre-chilled and I can just pull it out and I can pour it like I'm pouring a glass of wine. All I need to do is go and grab a quick lemon and put a garnish on top and it's ready and raring to go. So I have a five to one martini and a 50-50 martini pre-batch. So I guess technically I use the measurements on the side of the Ford's bottle to make those drinks, uh, followed the formula, put them in the freezer. So technically it's those two martinis. Love it. That's a good idea. I got to do that. Name a smell behind the bar that you love. This is a weird one. I it's the it's the the smell coming off of the walk-in fridge. It's always got that vent, right? And it's an odd, odd smell, but it gives me a comfort. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah, I love it. How about a smell behind the bar you hate? Uh, oh, putting out the trash always, of course. You know, what pisses you off behind the bar? When I not that much to be honest. Only myself, right? My inability to put things back where I pick them up. You know, like that makes me a sloppy bartender. It definitely did when I was bartending. I like pick up the bar spoon. And, and of course, if you ever guess bartend, you never know where anything goes anyway. And that's been most of my bartending for the last 20 years. Yeah. So, of course, <laughs> my inability to actually put things back where they belong. 
Yeah. What makes you happy behind the bar? You know, it, there's, there's a weird thing that happens when you're in survival mode. You, you will always find yourself in the zone. You know, I, I think the last time I was in the zone was I was doing a guest bartending appearance and I thought that like usual, I would get lots of support from the, the staff, but no, they were like, no, this is yours. And then 50, 60 people turned up. And for some reason, the ability to bartend in the zone that I had not experienced in so many years, because I'm not a regular bartender, came back instinctively. And the next thing I know, four hours went in five minutes and I had so much fun. And, and, then, and then that moment when you drink your first beer when you finish the shift. Love it. Love it. And tell us your favorite cocktail you make with Ford's Gin. For me... I mean, I, I'm very, I'm a very simple person when it comes to the drinks I make at home. Uh, it's, it's a martini. I think that's the best expression of Ford's gin. It really stands up to vermouth. And so I love it in a 50, 50. I really feel that Ford's and vermouth are great friends. And so I love a good classic martini and a gin and tonic will forever remain just the perfect hot day drink for me. So those are the two that I, I, I tend to make. And if I was trying to impress i still keep it simple you know like i love a good gin ricky i love a french 75 or a tom collins any of those sort of sours that are, are long and refreshing yeah love it awesome thank you thanks for the partnership this has allowed us to talk to some incredible bartenders around the country talking to them whether they're in oakland or new york or texas or wherever seeing their point of view on a cocktail seeing what they create how happy they get to work with you know gin fords specifically seeing their point of view on the industry it's it's been incredibly eye-opening we've received great feedback which we love and it's thanks to you know partnering with you all to help make it a reality so we thank well, you for that thanks for helping yeah. us give these bartenders more of a platform around the country you know through 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 the podcast i you know for me if you know we can make bartenders as famous as chefs i'll be very happy yeah i love and, it and, and help them get paid as much too would be good yeah <laughs> simon I, I think we had talked about maybe if you wanted to do a cocktail recipe you have a, you have a cocktail you want to share with us you know uh this was sort of getting and gaining popularity again uh about 10 years ago and i feel like it could sort of start gaining popularity again now it's one that i really like with forged gin that's the corpse reviver number two and the corpse reviver i think the whole idea was that it revived the corpse so i think it's a hangover cure drink uh, certainly from when it was created and it was first appeared in 1930 in harry craddock's the savoy cocktail book um but it's just a you know if we talk about what we we're talking about earlier andrew it's just one of those uh, cocktails uh where you've taken a formula and you've just sort of changed a few different things you know so it's um one part gin one part coke americano one part cointreau uh one part lemon juice so you sort of get that make makeup of a um of a sort of sour recipe, uh, there is a dash of absinthe in it and you shake it all up and you put it into a cocktail glass and there's no garnish. Uh, when you have a hangover, you don't really think about the garnish. Eh? Apparently that's, that's why. And um, there's a quote uh, that uh, comes in the Zafoy cocktail book that four of these taken in swift succession will unrevive the corpse again. So the corp corpse reviver uh, number two, yeah, which is next to the corpse reviver number one, which I can't remember what's in it, but they're, they're, they're both there in uh, Harry Craddock's The Savoy Cocktail Book from 1930. Amazing.
Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. That's a fun one. I want to like ask for that, but is this like, I feel like I have to go to like a real bartender. Yeah, to... I think if I think it's a good one to test bartenders with. I, I would say that if they know Corpse Survivor number two, order anything off the menu after that. They, they know what they're doing. Right. Yeah. Good point. Awesome. Simon, thank you again. I really appreciate it. Hopefully we can cheers in person sometime in the near future. Yes, that's starting to happen. Bars, I've been very much enjoying my visits to bars and since uh, I got my second shot. It's, it's, a, it's a magical thing, a magical thing that I sorely missed. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. Awesome. Well, thank you, sir. Enjoy uh, the rest of your day, the rest of your week, and we hope to connect soon. Brilliant. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you for tuning into this bonus episode. To learn more about Ford's Gin, go to FordsGin.com and follow them on social media at Ford's Gin. Please drink responsibly. Ford's London Dry Gin, 45% ABV, Brown Foreman, Louisville, Kentucky. Ford's Gin is a registered trademark. Ford's Gin, we thank you. To get the recipe from this episode, check out the episode notes in your podcast player or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. This episode is produced by myself, along with Ian Cohen, Joe Yetten, and Sean Petrosian. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at OnCappy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on all the socials at BT Plate Podcast. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy. And remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.